Hey folks, it's Jed Wolpaw here with just a quick message. We have switched over to a new platform, and you may start hearing some ads along with the episodes. This is really a way that we can continue to pay the growing cost of the services we need to keep the podcast coming to you without having to charge listeners. So we really want to keep the content free, and so we're going to start introducing some ads, and so if you hear them, you'll know what's going on. All right, thanks so much for listening, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am thrilled to have with me today a guest to talk about an unusual but really important topic in anesthesiology, which is environmental sustainability. So this is something I think a lot of people don't know a ton about or don't think about anywhere near as much as we should. And I'm really thrilled that I was put in touch with Dr. Shreya Agarwal from Northwestern. She's an assistant professor of anesthesiology at Northwestern. And she's really taken an interest in this, is going to help us learn more about it today. So Shreya, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So let, let's just start by asking you a little about you. Tell me about you. Where did you train? You're obviously at Northwestern now. How'd you get there? And, and um, what kind of practice do you have? Yeah, so I am a generalist at Northwestern. You know, I trained down in Texas, in Houston, at the University of Texas, and um, kind of made my way up here to Chicago. So just going from one extreme weather situation to another. And I started thinking about all this waste that we have in the operating room um, and kind of what our practices are. And I started realizing that, you know, there's a big environmental impact in what we do on a daily basis that sometimes, you know, when you're in the, the thick of things and you're going through your cases and taking care of your patients, um, you're just so focused on delivering these safe, well thought out anesthetics that you just it's hard to think about what all you're doing beyond that and how some of these um, decisions that you're making or ways that you're delivering things can impact the environment. Um, so I started asking questions, I started reading, and then that's kind of how I started developing a practice that I find to be a lot more long-term sustainable um, for my career, but also for the environment, because I do think that we have a big impact in what we're doing as anesthesiologists that's a little bit more unique to other people in healthcare. Yeah, interesting. And we'll definitely get into that. I, I am curious, you know, obviously, so you did you develop this in, or when did you start asking yourself this question of, do we have an impact on the environment? Was it when you were a resident? Was it uh, after? Because I think, you know, obviously all of us in anesthesia go through the same basic training and yet most of us don't ask that question. So what was it in you? Was I mean, had you had an interest in this prior to being in medicine or did somebody mention it to you and you thought, oh, that's interesting. I want to pursue it. Um, I don't know if I had like a aha moment necessarily, but it was just, yeah, as a resident, I started thinking about all the stuff, you know, um, I was trained as, as most people are that you should be prepared as best as possible for your cases and for your patient and for the inevitable. And, um, a lot of times that interpretation ends up being having all the things out 
all the drugs drawn up, everything available. And then um, I would turn around at the end of the case and there was just this pile of stuff that I wasn't using. And um, it became a pattern, right? It became a pattern at the end of every case, at the end of every day that there was just a pile of drugs that I never even touched or um, equipment. And I had it there because I wanted to be prepared. I wanted to be safe. Um, but it really wasn't necessary. And then that's when I, it really got me to think like, do I, should I be doing it this way or should I be doing it differently? Yeah. Well, that's great. I'm so glad you did because I think so many of us, you know, have that pile of stuff and don't think twice about it, but, um, I'm glad you did. And I'm glad you're going to help us to, to think about it. So, um, why don't we start very basic with the question of when we say environment, environmental sustainability, what, what exactly does that mean? Yeah. So, you know, we talk a lot about do no harm in medicine. And so sustainability is just kind of um, extending that out into the environment. And it's this idea of not being harmful to our environment on a global scale um, so that you're not depleting natural resources or um, impacting this long term ecological balance. And so when we talk about this, a lot of it is revolved around reducing our carbon footprint and our um, carbon emissions and our greenhouse gas emissions as a healthcare sector. Because the reality is, is that um, the healthcare sector is actually, especially here in the U.S., it's the second largest contributor to landfills, um, which then creates this huge carbon footprint um, that contributes to global warming, should you believe in global warming. So, and, and just for reference, the, the largest contributor to that is the food industry and how much it contributes, right? So when we talk about um, this impact, it's, it's profound globally, but it's especially more so here in the U.S. And, you know, you can talk about how because we're a first world country and we have these um, different standards of healthcare that we we want to um, provide this really high impact, meaningful care to our patients. We're still the highest here in North America compared to other countries in Europe, um, in South America, certainly Asia. And so when you start looking at other first world countries that have similar healthcare um, outcomes, why, why are we having such a impact on our carbon dioxide emissions that other people don't have, right? And I think that's kind of where it comes down to like, maybe there is something that we can change in our practice here to do that. Because we also know that the more greenhouse gas emissions that are put out into the atmosphere, the greater the impact on our global warming and our climate change. And that impacts health, right? Because we know that climate change results in heat-related disorders, right? Those extreme temperatures of heat and cold, as we're all seeing, there's an increase in respiratory problems secondary to these um, allergens that are being produced, the air pollution. There's an increase in... Um, vectors causing infectious disease and waterborne illnesses. And 
you get a lot of like physical injuries um, and dehydration, dementia, depression with these extreme weathers. So you kind of get into this like revolving circle, so to speak, of there's this impact on health because of climate change, which then needs more health care. And if we continue with the same health care trajectory that we have been, um, it's just going to become this vicious cycle, right? Because we're going to be producing more greenhouse gas emissions, which are then just going to continue to create this um, warming of the earth and the climate change. Right. So it's interesting. Uh, you're, you're exactly, I mean, this is, so, is such a good way to think about it. I mean, I, I've even heard that there's theories that, you know, the increasing rates of fungal infections may be related to climate change because as, mm-hmm. as fungi adapt to warmer temperatures, they are no longer as inhibited by our body temperature as they once were because they're more used to higher temperatures. And so whereas the 98.6 used to be high enough to kill most fungal infections, now it's becoming more and more not enough because they're used to higher temperatures in the environment. So there's a ton of, of health-related outcomes here. And of course, as we're recording this right now, there are, you know, unheard of cold temperatures in Texas. And certainly, you know, you said you trained out there. I hope if you have family there, they're doing okay. Um, and certainly any listeners uh, who've been affected um, by what's going on in, in Texas and across the South, hope everyone is doing all right. Um, so, so yes, there's a huge impact. And, um, and I hadn't really conceptualized it the way you just said, but that idea of a, of a vicious cycle where the more health poor health outcomes that are caused by global warming, the more health care we need, which then produces more bad, uh, you know, greenhouse gas emissions. So I want to talk, hear from you about kind of two aspects. We'll, we'll zero in on anesthesiology in a minute, but let's start more globally. You know, the healthcare industry in general, what is it about our healthcare industry in this country that is so bad? Why are we such a, a producer of, of um, negative impact on the environment in a way that even, as you said, other countries with similar health outcomes or even better health outcomes are not? What are we doing wrong? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a pretty loaded question there, right? Um, I think, and you're not going to probably find this written in literature, or at least I haven't seen it yet. This is kind of like my personal opinion. I think a lot of what we do in healthcare is around this idea of um, patient safety and infection, this idea of like nocosomial infections that we're going to somehow do that. And so we tend to um, have a practice where we rely all very heavily on disposable items, right? So um, in the operating room, disposable gowns, um, disposable pulse ox pros, right? We don't, we don't really want to expose patient A to patient B's um, equipment that we use, right? Even though we have clearly established that there are ways not for every single thing, but for for many things to disinfect them in a way that we wouldn't need to do that. But we kind of put it under this um, cover of, well, it's it's safer for the patient if we don't expose them to patient A stuff by making sure it's disposable. If patient goes home, that stuff gets thrown away. And so think I think that... that mm-hmm. Sorry, no, I was just going to say, do you think that... Uh, the kind of um, 
device companies that are making, let's just, for example, say, you know, the laryngoscope blades, right? I mean, you know, when, when probably, certainly when I was training, probably when you were training, right there, we didn't have disposable laryngoscopes. They were all reusable. And now it seems like everything, as you said, is disposable laryngoscope blades, there's disposable fiber optic scopes, everything. And it seems to me, and I don't know, I could be wrong, but it seems like what an opportunity for the device companies, right? Instead of selling you a a laryngoscope blade, which you then are going to use for the rest of your life, and you never have to go back to them to buy more. Now you've got a, they've got a continuing supply they have to deliver to you or they get to sell to you, right? I mean, there must be a push. And maybe the excuse being given is what you're saying, which is that this decreases infections, but it must also be driven by profit for the industry. Well, so, I mean, you know, the thing is, is that there's also this, this idea of this cross-contamination um, with the disposable, but also there's a big component of it's labor-intensive. So who's cleaning that equipment in between um, and how much does it cost to get it clean, right? So there's also utilizing those ecological resources like those toxic cleaning solutions and Sometimes people feel that it's faster, right, just to not have to clean it, or maybe they don't have the support system to do that. Um, because generally speaking, it's not you and I that are disinfecting those laryngoscope blades, right? Yeah. Um, we have an entire support team dedicated to that, but are they overextended or, you know, whatever? So, um, so that I think that plays a part in it too. And, realistically, when people are making these decisions, a lot of it is um, about the efficacy and the ease of use for these, um, like the monitors or the blades, right? Like, am I going to get that same outcome that I want by using this on my patient, going back to that patient safety aspect of am I delivering the best anesthetic care? And then to the cost. But very rarely are people thinking about the environmental consideration of that, right? So I don't know that, and maybe they are, right, depending on which company you're talking about. Um, maybe some com- manufacturers are pushing towards reusable, but it's almost like they're just meeting that demand from us. As yeah, I was actually providers. wondering if the if the companies are incentivized to to move away from reusable to to, to move toward disposable, right? I mean, clearly they are going to make more money if every month they have to sell you a bunch of new sure, blades. Sure, sure, yeah. but we are also asking for that demand. Yeah, right? sure, sure, sure. I mean, sure. just look at the pandemic; like you couldn't get Lysol wipes anywhere, right? But how many people were going on Amazon looking for Lysol wipes versus how many people were looking for a spray bottle and some uh, reusable cloths to clean? Do you know what I mean? Like, like the demand is still there for these companies to say, yes, you know, we'll do that. And yeah, we can make a lot of money off of it. So I think when you, um, if you have the opportunity to think about what equipment is being purchased there should be this component of the environmental consideration. And there's actually something called life cycle assessments that can be done to have that component weighed in so that you're making the right choice, right? Um, Because when you look at the life cycle assessment, you're looking at how much of the environmental factors or how many resources went into making something like a steel or endoscope blade, which is obviously um, 
more intensive at the beginning, right? You're using more resources, but then you're going to use it forever versus a reusable blade that's going to be easier to make because it's made out of aluminum and it's cheaper and it's flimsy. Um, but over the course of however many times, you know, you're going to need so many, right? Right. And I think sometimes a lot of times people aren't doing that. Is there any data to suggest that reusable equipment does decrease the risk of nosocomial infections? To decrease the risk, I'm not sure. I'm sorry, I said reusable, but I meant um, uh, disposable. That disposable equipment um, decreases the risk of nosocomial infections. In other words, if you aren't reusing things, is that is there anything to suggest that that is actually helpful for infection? I don't know that I've seen that, right? But I think we've seen data to say that um, you're not at an increased risk if you're properly disinfecting the reusable equipment okay. in whatever so, way the yeah. manufacturer intended. Um, okay. I do want to go back to the manufacturer piece, though, because there are manufacturers that do have recycling and reprocessing programs. So although, yes, they are incentivized to um, sell you like the reusable stuff, right? Of course, they're going to make a lot of money off of it. I do think that there are um, enough programs that we probably don't take advantage of in terms of reprocessing equipment. And what I mean by that is where you take a certain device and you send it back to a manufacturer and they go through very rigorous processes for cleaning and sterilizing that device. They retest it. They ensure it meets FDA standards and then they resell that device at a lower cost. Mm -hmm. So they're still making money off of that device, right? But it has gone through stringent regulations because this is all um, dictated by the FDA. And there are actually, um, you know, regulations around this and they have to be registered so that it's safe for our patients. And again, I don't know how many practices or institutions are optimizing that reprocessing program for a lot of these yeah. manufacturers. Yeah. That's and there's a lot of room for um, purchasing improvement there as well. Yeah. Okay. So when we say there's this big environmental footprint that the healthcare system has, is it one thing we've talked about obviously is waste, right? Is throwing stuff away. There's also greenhouse gas emissions just from the nature of the fact that these are large buildings with, uh, you know, large machines that are putting out gas. I mean, is the, what is that aspect of it? Yeah. Um, so, you know, when you start looking at the amount of energy that it takes to run a normal hospital, right, or a clinic, um, in terms of the lights, the air conditioning or the heat or all the medical devices, right? Um, all that starts adding up and then you the medical devices tend to take more energy, right? And then you start talking about the amount of waste, obviously, but then also the amount of uh, the drugs that are used and the other resources that are put into play. Um, the laundering services, right? Uh, when you start talking about patient gowns and patient blankets and all that stuff, um, that that's what all adds up into this 
uh, waste production for our U.S. healthcare system. So, you know, in when you look at um, the amount of the global warming per potential from healthcare, most of it is actually from hospital systems and not so much from these individual like physician um, clinic facilities, if you will. And actually the second largest um, global warming potential contributor is actually from prescription drugs. So like from pharmaceuticals. So if you start talking about healthcare as a whole, it would rank like number 13 in the world for the amount of greenhouse gas emissions that are put out once you start taking in all these different components. And our anesthetic gas is actually our big contributor to that as well. And we can talk about that more later. Yeah. So I was going to ask, but, um, you know, when, so there's obviously there's the whole healthcare system. And I think you pointed out, you know, the amount of energy it takes to keep a giant hospital going and wash everything and heat and et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's the waste of materials um, and the cleaning of materials. You mentioned the toxic chemicals that are used to clean uh, things that are reusable. And then those obviously are going to end up somewhere. Uh, mm-hmm. And then there is the uh, purchasing and throwing away of disposable. So really, whether you have disposable or reusable, there's still kind of negative environmental impact in some way. Right. But- and that's where you have to really think about your actual um each individual thing, right? Like, and where is that risk benefit situation? Because right. it's not going to be the same for each one. Right, right. And you mentioned there are services that will help hospitals think through this. Like, where, what, you know, what is the right or best, at least, choice for a given situation? Yeah. Okay. So, what about anesthesia specifically? So, obviously, you know, we have a unique um, practice. We're using gases that no one else is using. Um, as well as some materials that aren't being used, at least not as extensively elsewhere, like endotracheal tubes. Obviously, the ICU is also using them, but we use them a lot. What What's the impact of what we do in anesthesia? Yeah, so when you start looking at the healthcare industry, right, about 30% of that, I, I said before, you know, most of it's coming from hospitals. And from the hospitals, about 30% of that's coming from the OR. And a lot of that is, all the surgical equipment, right? Like the sterile drapes um, and the supplies, but at least a quarter of that is from our anesthetic contribution. So I think there's a lot of room to improve, right? Once you start talking about this stuff. Um, and when you start talking about where that is, I think there's a couple big components of that, right? So the inhalationals that we use, um, our equipment, but then also how are we disposing of our waste, right? So a lot of times, you know, so everyone knows in the operating room, you have all these different receptacles that your waste can go into Um, when you're done with an IV bag or your syringe full of propofol or, you know, your vial, what have you, right? Are you going to put in the trash can? Are you going to put in the sharps container? Are you going to put in like a blue box or a black box? And um, a lot of times things just go in the trash, just like a regular trash can. And they shouldn't be there. And that's a big deal because um, when you put things that aren't supposed to go in the normal trash can, it gets sent to the landfill and it leaks out into the 
soil and then that goes into our water supply, right? And that's why we have all this data now about um, the ecosystems changing and all the poor fish, you know, having to deal with all these things in their water supply and the fish are dying and sea life is changing. And then, you know, I have this fridge now that um, filters out like antidepressants and like Xanax has got a special filter on it because all this stuff is in our water supply, right? Because mm -hmm. people are just dumping it down the drain or into the trash can and then it seeps out. Um, but also a lot of times I see people putting things that shouldn't be in the sharps container in the sharps container. And that becomes a big deal because when you talk about this waste stream management, if you start thinking about how, what happens downstream, if you take that sharps container and think about what's going to happen with it, that stuff is getting incinerated, which is all then um, contributing to this carbon footprint, right? So now if you have things like sharps in there, that makes sense. But if you start adding paper or, um, you know, I've seen all kinds of stuff in there, right? Like that shouldn't be in there, then you're just incinerating it. And that's, that's a terrible thing to do for the environment. It's also actually very high cost for the hospitals as well, because most um, facilities are charging or are being charged for this stuff according to how it's being processed later down the road, right? Because it's more expensive to put something on a truck and send it to an incinerator than it is to just put in a landfill. All right, hang in there. We'll be right back. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So it seems to me like in the OR, there are maybe two broad categories of, at least on the anesthesia side, there's the actual gases that we use, and then there's the waste um, of uh, kind of the stuff that we use. So l let me ask you about the gases. I think most places in this country, you're going to have a choice between desflurane, sevoflurane, and isoflurane, and nitrous oxide, you know, plus or minus nitrous. nitrous. Um, what do we know about the impact of those gases? I mean, they must, you know, they're not, we don't reuse them, right? They get scavenged. 
Um, I mean, there's a certain amount of reuse in the circle system, but you know, whatever is not getting rebreathed by the patient is getting scavenged and it's not going out into the OR. So it's getting scavenged and presumably it is getting evacuated into the environment. So what is the impact of the gases we use and are some worse than others? Yeah, that's exactly right. So because the vast majority of our um, inhalationals are not being metabolized, right? It's such a small portion. Most of it is being scavenged and then it's um, being vented intact into the atmosphere essentially, right? So what happens to that gas afterwards, right? That's like the, then that becomes a question. Well, most of these gases well, sorry, all of these gases, they end up staying in the atmosphere for some amount of time. And that time is variable depending on which inhalational, but it stays there until it finally degrades in the atmosphere. And that longer lifetime of being in the atmosphere allows for that continued atmospheric warming, which um, when you start thinking about what that does, um, when, if you think about it on a basic perspective, you will deliver an anesthetic. And depending on which gas you use, um, if you use nitrous oxide, the atmospheric lifetime of nitrous oxide is 114 years. So if I give a patient nitrous today, it's going to be there in the air long after I'm gone. I mean, I'll be dead and that, that will still be there, right? That's a big deal. Mm. So our actions actually have a big impact versus if you use a gas like sevoflurane, that's in the atmosphere for about a year. Um, ISO lasts a little bit longer, about three years. And then you have desflurane, which is about 14 years, right? So when you start looking at your gases and you start thinking about, you're going to do this every day for somewhere between like one and 10 cases a day for, you know, a 30 year career, right? It becomes a really big deal when you think about how long these gases are in the environment. We also know um, the global warming potential for our inhalationals. And when you take, when we talk about this stuff, we talk about um, the global warming potential over a hundred years and they kind of set carbon dioxide as one to make it easy for everyone. Um, Sevoflurane has a global warming potential of 130 versus desflurane, which is on the other end of the spectrum. And it's like over 2,500. So really there's no reason to be using desflurane. Um, and a lot of places still have that available. And I would highly encourage people to think about, do they really need desflurane? Is there any um, benefit that their patient is getting specifically from using desflurane versus a different inhalational like sevoflurane? Yeah. Because when you look at them, when you compare sevoflurane, isoflurane, and desflurane, sevoflurane then becomes the most environmentally inhalational um, gas that we have. In the this most environmentally friendly. Yes, sorry. That's yeah. um, so is there a reason to be using desflurane? Is there a reason to be using isoflurane? That's not as bad as desflurane, but you know, you really have to start thinking about these um, nuances, right? Is that quick on and off that a lot of people talk about with desflurane, is that worth it? Or can you achieve the same thing with sevoflurane and just time your anesthetic accordingly? Right. 
So I want to emphasize this because I think this is really important. So um, what you said is that desflurane, first of all, lasts significantly longer than sevoflurane. So I think you said 14 years versus about a year. And then while it's there, has 2,500 times the warming effect of carbon dioxide where SIBO has about 130 times the warming effect of carbon dioxide. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it's, it's something about, to that effect. Yeah, yeah. Give or take. I mean, so. And, and that's in comparison to carbon dioxide, right? And when we talk right. about carbon footprint, we're using carbon dioxide. Right. Right. Yeah. So the point being that the carbon footprint of these gases is, is much higher than just carbon dioxide. And that's like kind of what gets the big buzz in non-healthcare sectors, right? When you talk about other industries like the car industry or um, aviation. So I I think our anesthetics, like we don't hear about it as much because they're not regulated, right? By the government um, or by other societies because they're considered to be medically essential. And I think part of that too is because initially it wasn't really known what a big deal it was. So um, we've been able to just kind of practice without having any regulation. And I'm not saying that we should have regulation. That's not the point. But I think it's important to talk about that we should have some responsibility in how we're using them then. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it, you know, it it certainly seems like choosing sevoflurane over desflurane when there's that big of a difference in impact is is pretty you know straightforward i mean you could imagine what if uh we changed it from environmental impact to cost so what if desflurane cost you know 2500 times <laughs> more than sevoflurane right no one would ever use desflurane um but uh you know it's it's this kind of what it feels to people like a little more amorphous, right? They're not, they're not, they don't, the hospital doesn't, and neither does the anesthesiologist feel the immediate impact. And yet it's striking, as you said, I mean, you know, thousands of anesthesiologists over, over decades of practice using, making these choices. And that has some significant impact. Um, okay. So gases, um, you know, the, the worst offenders, it sounds like being uh, desflurane and nitrous oxide. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and I think there's still a lot of um, people that, you know, like to have nitrous as part of their gas mix. And again, I would just say, you know, I, I'm not here to tell people how to practice, right? That's not the point of this talk. But it, I think it's important to weigh that in your um, risk-benefit considerations of do you need that nitrous? Like, is it really adding to your MAC? Because we know that it's very minimal amount, right? And is it providing you with that effect that you really need? Or can you achieve it other ways? And then the other part too of this is um, your fresh gas flows. So the fresh gas flow will determine the amount of gas that's entering the scavenger per minute. And so um, once you exceed the patient's requirement based on, you know, your ventilatory parameters, that's how much it's going to end up out in the atmosphere. So I would really encourage people to consider doing um, efficient fresh gas flows, right? So low flow anesthesia is kind of what we talk about here because um, 
and there's a lot of different strategies to do this, but the, I think the simplest way to do it is just to drop your flows during the maintenance phase of the anesthesia. And for yeah. most situations, that's less than a liter total. Yeah, and it's really interesting. You know, in this country, we we are still taught and, and are teaching our trainees that sevoflurane needs at least two liters per minute. And yet, when I've had guests from other countries, they think we're crazy because the data is pretty clear that that's not true, that it's totally safe to use lower flows with sevoflurane. And we could we could probably do even better in terms of, oh, and we could clearly do even better in terms of our environmental impact if we moved away from that. Right. Yeah. And then I think that goes back to that people feel like they're risking something for the patient by dropping the flows um, and you're not going to. Right. 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 You would have to drop them very, very low. Right. Um, but that's yeah. just not clinically. It's really not that big of an issue. And I think that um, people should feel confident dropping their flows. Yeah. Okay. So what do you recommend? I mean, we've talked, we've kind of moved on to the question of what can people do? So one obvious thing is low flow. If you're going to use inhaled anesthetics, low flow, try to avoid desflurane, try to avoid nitrous oxide, stick to SIVO or ISO, better, better SIVO than ISO. Um, what else uh, can people do? You mentioned that there are, um, you know, most ORs have, a, are in our in our ORs, there's a blue recycling bin, there's a red uh, blood bin and a gray regular trash bin. You know, I think most of the time we use them as three interchangeable trash bins. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously one thing is paying attention to, and trying to put things that can be recycled in the recycling bin. What other things can people do to try to mitigate their impact on the environment as they practice? Yeah. So, you know, I just think being mindful in the operating room about what you're doing will go a long way. And so what I mean by that is um, think about like what you're setting up and what your patient needs, right? Just even going through your day-to-day like routine, appy case, OR setup um, and making that distinction between what is necessary for providing that good, safe, well thought out anesthetic and what you're doing just because that's how you set up your room or that's how you always do it. Um, and, and it goes back to that piece of like, you know, a lot of us, we, that's how we were trained to do it, or that's how we're being trained to do it. And, um, you know, I, I'm at an academic center too, and I can tell sometimes that, um, our residents are doing something because, you know, they're, they're just trying so hard to be a good resident and they had someone tell them do something and they they just want to make sure that people understand that they're taking that feedback and they're doing it that way. Right. And they don't want to get in trouble um, and they're trying to find their way. Right. But do you need that or not? Like, do you need um, three different sizes of oral endotracheal tubes available for this routine appendectomy? Or can you just have the one that you think is going to be the best fit? And that's the one that you have open and, you know, maybe styleted and just have the other ones available nearby, but not open. Even that just makes a big difference because generally speaking, if you open something, it's going to end up in a trash can at some point. Yeah. Either because that's your institutional policy that at the end of the day that gets thrown away or at the end of the week, you know, maybe the anesthesia techs are going to come by and throw it away 
or maybe it gets gross because now it has blood on it or it has, you know, some saliva on it. You're going to throw it away anyway. So um, I think, I think if you start thinking about, okay, I'm going to have it available in case something doesn't go right. And then I'll just reach for it. Cause I know exactly where it is. And I know I'm prepared in this room with it versus I need to have it right next to my laryngoscope. Um, it, it might be a little uncomfortable sometimes. Um, and certainly not for those situations where you have a high likelihood of needing something, right. Cause you have to be safe, but for, normal situations, I don't think that you need to have three endotracheal tubes out or, you know, all the size oral airways out. Um, you know, at my institution, we, one of the things that we initiated was that the blood pressure cuff was going to follow the patient wherever they went in the hospital. So, um, which probably doesn't seem like a big deal, but, you know, Sometimes they get one blood pressure, and this is disposable, right? Sometimes they get a blood pressure cuff at the beginning out in pre-op, and then they get another one in the operating room, and then they get another one in recovery, and then they go to the floor, and it just all starts adding up because along the way, things get tossed. Um, but they don't need that, right? Because if they're appropriately sized, they should just need the one, right? Yeah. Just really simple things, Um I will routinely take the, if the pulse ox isn't working and and I can't use a reusable one um, because I think that's a great opportunity to have a reusable monitor is a pulse ox probe. Um, a lot of places they, or people prefer to use uh, the disposable one, um, but then if they don't get a good reading, they just put another one on. Well, generally speaking, you can peel off the sticker and put it on a different finger, you know, or, or the earlobe. And, um, I think sometimes we don't even think about it. It doesn't actually take that long. You know, I've seen people cut gowns because they didn't want to untie the knot, you know. Um, these are like simple things. And sometimes it only takes a minute to do. Yeah. But people don't really think about it. Um, you know, I, I can go on and on, but I I use a lot of donuts, those pink donuts, right, for the head. Mm -hmm. And I save the inside of the circle to use for padding elsewhere. Instead of getting another towel to pad the patient somewhere else. Um, or if I'm putting in another IV, I don't necessarily spike it with a whole new IV bag if it's just a backup IV because I know I'm going to have poor access and I'm not planning on giving a lot of fluids or drugs through it, right? It's just a just-in-case IV. I just have log and put an extension on it because now I'm not wasting a whole IV bag and a whole setup. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a lot of examples like this, yeah. right? Not to mention you're not over flooding your patient with fluid. But, you know. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, you know, I, I think there's like little ways that you can do things so that if, if something happens, you are still prepared, but just being more mindful. And then certainly, um, decreasing the amount of drug waste, right? Just drop what you need. You don't need to have um, things in line necessarily. If you don't anticipate your patient needing pressors, do you need to have them in line, right? Ready to right. go. Right. Once um, it's in it, line, it's done. Obviously you can't reach right. it. Right, exactly. It and that's a lot of pharmaceutical waste. And, you know, I think we've all seen 
drug shortages, right? And we don't really talk about the impact that we, we talk a lot about how there's a drug shortage because of manufacturing, but we also have a component that too. It's because a lot of times we're just wasting them. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think um, pre-filled syringes are so key for this. Right. Right. Because, right. you know, I obviously, if I don't have any pre-filled syringes, I'm not going to start a case without having, without mixing up a bag of phenylephrine or something, right? So that I can have a push dose. But if I have a, a sealed pre-filled syringe of phenylephrine, then okay, I don't need to necessarily open it. And if I need it, I need it. If not, it's totally sterile. It's still usable. I can have it ready for the next case. So that, I know it's an investment on the part of pharmacy. I know it takes labor for them to prepare these, but from an environmental impact standpoint, it can save a lot of waste. Yes, I'm so glad that you brought those up because I do think that that really is the way of the future in terms of drug waste. Um, and I think that it, it would make a really um, impactful thing if we can get more institutions to do that now. Certainly having those vasopressors even I think is a big deal. Um, and then, you know, like the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation has talked about this a lot from a patient safety standpoint of having the pre-filled syringes. But from an environmental standpoint, um, you're right. You don't need a whole bag of phenylephrine for most cases. Yeah. You know, you use the word mindful. And I think that that strikes me as like the, the underlying message is that so often we aren't mindful of our potential impact on the environment. I think for a lot of us, it's because we just didn't think about it. No one ever told us and we didn't ever think about it ourselves. And so it's literally not something on our radar. So it's not that we're, we're deciding that we don't care. It's that we don't even know to think. And so I'm, I'm hoping that this will be a, a, you know, a wake up call to a lot of people to say, hmm, you know, there are little things that won't waste a lot of my time and won't, you know, negatively inconvenience me or my patient, but that I could just keep in mind, be mindful of in the OR and could make a big difference. Um, and, and I think that's really key. Uh, um, Trey, are, are there major things that we haven't covered that you want to make sure we hit before we um, move on? You know, I could talk about this stuff all day. So that's kind of a question, <laughs> a there. question. Well, yeah. is there, let me, let me say this. Are there any last messages or recommendations that you want to get out to the audience? Um, I mean, the, a general one can certainly be, you know, look into this more because there's a lot more to it and a lot more things you can do, but are there things that you would think, man, like I, I have to make sure that people hear this before, before we end. Yeah, no, I just think, you know, just, kind of think about it, like go through, you know, even just as a mental exercise, if, if you're interested at all about the impact that you're having, just go through, you know, in your next case, when you're in the OR and things have settled down, like, is there anything here that I found that I don't typically need or that I could do a little bit different? Um, and just start like looking around and seeing what's going on. Um, and I think, you know, we, we have a responsibility to our patients, but we also really do have a responsibility to the environment that we live in, right? Um, because we're seeing all these things happen that people talk about, these historical temperatures, these um, pandemics that we're now in, right? And then so it, it sometimes it doesn't necessarily translate as like, okay, I... Um, used us for and I turned up my fresh gas flows and I took some stuff out and now like people's asthma is flaring up too much, right? It doesn't, that's not, 
the connection that we have, but that's kind of where things are going, right? And the WHO has put out a lot of data on this. I think we're going to link some of it later um, about how much the environmental impact on disease, that burden is like 22% on a global scale. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty striking. Um, well, this is really important stuff, and I'm really glad that you have highlighted this for us. Um, and as you said, I would highly encourage people to think more about this, seek more information. We'll put some uh, links that you recommend in the show notes, and people can um, look more into it. Um, let's move to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. Do you have something that you would recommend to the audience as they continue to look for ways to keep entertained uh, when they're not socializing um, that they can check out? I'll give you a minute to think about it while I share a shout out from an audience member, Matthew Shannon, who recently graduated from anesthesiologist assistant school, recommends that folks check out the White Coat Investor podcast. He said it's taught him so much about finances, which ironically nobody ever seriously teaches you about, as well as how to use my income to actually serve me both short term and long term. So great recommendation. Check it out. All right, Shreya, back to you. Yeah, I mean, right now, you know, um, I have two little kiddos, so the best thing that I can recommend is sleep. <laughs> but other than that, you know, we've been cooking a lot. That's kind of our activity. And so I there's this, this pizza dough that we use a lot, and it's just fun because we get dirty and messy, and we, you know, who doesn't like pizza? Um and yeah, we've just been doing a lot of like at-home dance parties and just kind of <laughs> relaxing that way. So nice, that's fun. Um, the pizza dough uh, is great to know about, and maybe if you uh, send me that recipe, I'll put it in the show notes as well. Uh, if folks want to check it out, um, I will shout out a, a podcast. In, in a prior episode, I talked about Axios Today, which is um, Axios is a news organization. They do this nice little morning podcast about the kind of news of the day, but. They also recently did a, I think it was about a six episode kind of mini series. Um, it, was, it was reported by Jonathan Swan, who covered um, Trump from, I think, before he was ever president and then through his presidency. And it's really interesting. They, he delves really in depth with the question of how did Trump decide to contest the election results? Like what led to that decision? How did it proceed? And then how did that lead to January 6th and the Capitol riots. And it's he does such a good job of the reporting and he, and he talks to people really on the inside who were there in the room for a lot of these discussions. And, and it's really interesting. It really sheds a lot of light on how we got to January 6th. And um, I highly recommend it for anyone, uh, regardless of your political leanings, but just who is interested in knowing more about how we arrived at, at, the, um, at the kind of craziness uh, that happened on January 6th. So I recommend checking that out. Shreya, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. All right. That was great. I think this is such important stuff and something we just don't think about that much. But let us know what you thought. Go to the website, ACRAC.com, where you can leave a comment and others can learn from what you have to say. Maybe you have some tips that we didn't think of to help reduce the impact of our practice on the environment. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Walpaw, and we're at ACRAC Podcast. And you can also join the Facebook group. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use and leaving a comment and a rating. 
It will help others find the show. If you're interested in supporting the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can, of course, make individual donations anytime you want by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Wolpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Big thanks, as always, to Dr. Brian Park, our tech lead, to April Liu, who is our social media manager, and to Dr. Kimia Kashkuli, who is helping out with some of the show notes. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAG Podcast and Dr. Shreya Agarwal, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Thank you.